Welcome to the PhD in Parenting Podcast, the podcast where we talk about being a parent in academia and an academic at home. We're your hosts, Judith LeCamper and Aaron Bell. In every episode, we'll discuss a key issue impacting parents working in the field of academia, helpful hacks, and what we're reading. In future episodes, we also hope to interview some parents working in academia. So this is our very first episode, and today we not only want to talk about the ideas behind this podcast, but who we are and what makes us qualified to do this. Judith, since this is your brainchild, why don't you start us off? Who are you and what has drawn you to thinking about all these great ideas? Yeah, um, so... I have a PhD in English, as do you, Erin, and um, I graduated in 2017 with a dis- my dissertation was on uh, motherhood and popular culture, and specifically I was interested in um, how these the different narratives that I was looking at uh, discussed maternal embodiment, and so I've been thinking about uh, motherhood and the experience of motherhood both personally and academically for quite a while now. Um, I, when I graduated in 2017, I didn't go on the job market right away. I also have a background in publishing with a master's degree. Um, and so I, and I had some editing experience through grad school. And so I decided to pursue a degree, a career in publishing. Um, and since 2018, since January of 2018, I've been working in an in acquisitions department of an academic press. I have three kids. Uh, my oldest daughter is seven, about to eat, about to be eight. My son is almost four, and then I have a baby, and she is just over six months. How about you, Erin? Well, that's awesome. It sounds like you're not only uh, you're kind of living the work. You talk about um, embodiment and things like that, so you're an expert all around. Well, yes, it is true. We met at Wayne State. I think that's okay to say. And I always kind of tell people this. I was like, I decided to be friends with the smartest person I met there, which was you. Um, so we've had a really lasting, awesome friendship. But I too uh, started my PhD program with three kids on board already, and I want to say they were like seven, four, and one at the time, which was really interesting. Um, And so I was a little bit later. uh, It took me closer to 10 years to finish that PhD and that dissertation work. Um, And it was interesting for me because I actually applied for a full-time job while I was still writing my dissertation. And ironically enough, I don't know if you remember that, but it was a job ad that you had sent me. Remember the tag was like, I think you could do this job. Um, so yeah. props to you for that one. And I got the job, which was pretty a pretty great problem to have, actually. It was one of the first jobs I ever applied for. So I didn't have to go through that long, drawn-out job search process, so to speak. Um, but yeah, I've been working. Excellent. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Uh, I've been working at a career college, um, and I really like the work I do. But it is a teaching-heavy school, right? So it's usually about... Uh, usually about 10 classes a year and we teach for 12 months at a time. So we don't usually have the summers off. Um, I did have a long dissertation process, as I mentioned. I hope to maybe talk about some of that in the future. Um, I think it's helpful to be transparent with other people who are still going through that process. And now I have four kids. I actually had the fourth kid whilst uh, writing. I think I had her, I was pregnant with her in the prospectus period. So I think it's going to be fun for us to talk a little bit about the different challenges we have. My kids range from 16 years old to seven. So I think this could be another sort of great topic that we bring up uh, because the challenges for me right now is that my four kids are all at such different um, age groups. And I think this really is going to play into what we want to talk a little bit about today, which can't be ignored, which is the quarantine, the stay-at-home order. Uh, so, you did. how does the quarantine, or if you want to call it a stay-at-home order, how does that really like impacted your life in the last few months? What has been different for you? <laughs> Loaded question. An immense impact on my day-to-day life. Um, I actually started working remotely last summer already. The company I work for is located in Maryland, which is where we were living uh, when I took the job. And last summer we moved back to Michigan, which is where my husband is originally from. He took a job up here and I was able to go remote. So I was very well set up with a home office, uh, used to sort of work life boundaries and things like that. And then when the schools closed, they were really quick. Uh, I think it was mid-March in in Michigan that the schools closed. I threw everything into organizing a homeschooling schedule and trying to set up my kids with, you know, a daily routine that would work. 
And then less than a week into that, I found out that my company was temporarily suspending all operations due to COVID and I was put on furlough. So I went from, you know, being a work from home mom to being a stay at home mom really for the last seven or eight weeks or however long it's been which was a completely new experience to me. Um, I was really, you know, of course, in a lot of ways, it's a very thankful position to be in. I was very grateful to have sort of the extra time with my baby. I had just gotten out of um, my maternity leave for a month and was starting to pick up some speed again and then was, uh, you know, sent home, if you will. And so I'm grateful for the extra time with my youngest daughter, um, and also with the older two, of course, but it's definitely been challenging to try and navigate the, all of the different demands. I like what you said about the different ages. I have a six month old baby that I'm still nursing. I'm trying to potty train an older child. Um, and then, you know, I have a second grader who has homeschooling demands and needs to be uh, supervised and um, observed and things like that. And so uh, it's been a really, a huge change of pace for me just in terms of my identity it has been a huge identity shift as well um and so yeah still trying to really deal with that i've thrown a lot of my energy into learning about parenting i've always sort of not felt entirely comfortable with my parenting style and so i've used this opportunity to read more and learn more um listen to some podcasts. And so I thought it was, you know, a great idea because you and I already talk about these things so much anyway, every time we see each other, I thought this would be a great idea to sort of get together with you on a regular basis and discuss, you know, some of the challenges that we have, but also some of the ways that we've worked through those challenges. And then, of course, since you have older kids, you're always somebody that I look to because you can, you know, every time my kids hit the new phase, you've already <laughs> been there and you can, you know, you can help me how you've or you can tell me how you've worked through some of those. So I thought this would be an interesting, um, an interesting setup for us to get to spend the, that time together and then also share with others, you know, what knowledge and skills we've acquired I think you um, no, it makes a lot of sense. And I think you're bringing up another really valid point, which has probably been a really big challenge um, for myself and for others during this uh, shutdown time, which is that we feel a bit isolated from our scholarly communities. Um, sometimes our work uh, colleagues become more like a support system. And so I love this idea of getting together and maybe sharing some of our insights. Um, something you said a little while ago was about scheduling. And I think that's something we'll definitely have to talk a little bit more about because you and I are probably couldn't be more different in that arena. Um, you are ultra organized and I always really admire that about you. So there's like pros and cons of both approaches, but I really love that you've used this time to like sort of think through your parenting style. Um, I think for me, the challenge was just the chaos of it all uh, because I have been teaching, which is great. I'm super, like you said, you know, I'm very grateful for the fact that I've continued to be employed throughout this. And I think because of the new technology in higher, it's not even really new technology anymore, but the use of technology in um, higher education, I felt pretty poised to like move most of my classes online. It wasn't a huge change for me, but my day was a huge change for me. And even though I say I'm kind of like more flexible, I was really used to the pattern of get the kids to school, go to work, kind of have my coffee in the car, listen to my radio shows I like, kind of have that quiet um, time. It's about a 45-minute commute. So I actually, in spite of the Detroit traffic, um, I like that time. And then it shifts to basically just chaos here and pandemonium. At first, I was like, okay, everyone, we're going to get up at the same time <laughs> every day. We're going to keep that schedule. Uh, everyone's going to be up and ready to go, just like you would on a regular school day at 745. And that lasted for about a day. I don't even think it lasted a day. Um, and we ended up having a week or two off with the kids. Uh, they kind of used that as their spring break time. And then we got everything remote. So I know a lot of folks talked about getting packets, but everything from uh, my children's school was all online. And that was great, uh, but it just seemed like a lot coming from all different directions. And I love what our teachers did. I have all um, pure admiration for them, but it was just like some days I got 16 emails about different class projects, right? Because they kept up with all their coursework. So they had specials 
they had all their core, you know, math and science, and um, they go to a parochial school. So there was religion, there was art, there was music, there was even gym. Um, you'd think that they would like the gym class, but that seemed to be a problem for us. So I think it was just kind of trying to deal with all the sort of disorganization. I really had to focus on trying to be a little bit better with that um, because I'm someone that struggles with that. Uh, I've, I've gotten better over the years, but it just, I, I think to me that kind of was something that I could have used more help with. Um, so definitely a challenge. Um, I don't know. Does that resonate with you at all? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the, the fact that your kids are older um, and that, you know, there's more of them that are in school definitely put a bigger organizational challenge on you than I had. My daughter's school did not send that much material either. They had a 20-minute video for them every day, and then they added one video a week for the specials, but there was sort of no assignment attached to it. So whether she did it or not was not necessarily checked on. And she was really excited about the platform of using um, Google Scholar or Google's Classroom is what they were using. And so I didn't have to monitor her all that much. So my big, my challenges were not necessarily related to schoolwork because once we had made it past the first two weeks where there was very little content provided from the school, I could really just kind of let her go with it. And she had it, I gave her a checklist every week. I got an email from the teacher once a week at the beginning of the week. I gave her a checklist and it was her job to check it all off. And she did. And so it wasn't as challenging for me as it probably, it sounds like it was for you. You know what? I think I hear her calling you right now. So maybe we could take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we want to introduce a new segment. I guess they're all new because it's a brand new podcast, but thinking about um, hacks of the week and then what we're reading. So stay tuned for that. And we'll be right back. Okay, so we're back. And now that we've talked a little bit about um, the general challenges of being a parent during the stay-at-home order um, and that we've established that you and I both struggled, I think it's probably fair to assume that other parents are affected as this um, just as much and especially parents that are working in academia. So um, actually when I wanted to talk a little bit about what I was experiencing before all of this went down because the universities actually were some of the first places to um, have consequences and make quick decisions. So for the university here in town, they had spring break the first week of March, and it became clear very quickly that they were not going to ask students and instructors to come back to campus after spring break, at least for a little while. And in my line of work, a lot of what I do is to be in touch with authors that are already under contract with us and also with other authors that I've met at conferences and other places that are working on projects. And uh, a lot of my time goes into checking in with them, seeing, you know, how's your manuscript coming along? How's that proposal coming along? And when I first, once all of this started happening, I reached out to a bunch of people just to get a feel for how things were moving along. And I got one of two responses. I had a handful of people that answered very quickly that were very excited. And I think at that point, not all of us had realized how serious this really was. So that'll be a little caveat. But a handful of people wrote back and they were basically saying, this is great. I don't have to go back to the classroom. I have so much free time now. I'll be able to make much progress on the manuscript or on the proposal. Right. Um, and then, uh, you know, it took a few days and then some other responses were trickling in and those were more like, I am completely overwhelmed. I have to, you know, move all of my classes online. I, there's, I, I have, I am home with my children. I have to oversee their homeschooling schedules and whatnot, what we already talked about. And yes. so, um, for me very quickly, I sort of had this assumption that this was probably a very gendered experience. And so I was wondering um, about that a little bit. And you and I have both looked into this a little bit and you found a study online that I thought was really interesting. So could you talk 
about that a little bit. What did you find? Yeah, that's great. And I think it is a gendered experience, like so much of what we've faced in the academy, right? And so this comes from Megan Fredrickson. She's an ecologist at the University of Toronto, Canada. And so she kind of started gleaning data. She works in a STEM field. And so the title of her project was COVID-19's Gendered Impact on Academic Productivity. And she is also a mother as well as someone who, like us, kind of had to shift gears and figure out how to balance both her academic work as well as um, staying home with her children. And so uh, I, a lot of it was about data gleaning and some of it, to be fair, uh, because it's from the STEM field, was a little bit different than the sort of analysis we would do in the humanities. But the final takeaway was that uh, the trends in both preprint servers, um, she looked at two preprint servers, are consistent with the hypothesis that the pandemic is disproportionately hurting the productivity of female scholars. Uh, she leaves us with a question, which is how long uh, this will persist is unknown, but um, this is, these are still open questions. And so honestly, I'd really like to get in touch uh, with Dr. Fredrickson at some point and kind of uh, get a little more information about this. But I definitely feel that this is something that most of us have observed firsthand, right? That in spite of all the strides we've made as working women and as academics, um, our experiences are not alone in that it seemed to be doubly hard for us to kind of balance both of these um, fields of work and home life, right? Absolutely. And one thing that I keep thinking about is sort of the long-term impact of this as well. So as we're going back to school, for us, uh, there's not going to be a summer camp. Uh, I have not heard what the plans are for, you know, opening schools after the summer. And what I have heard is that there's a pretty high likelihood that there will be continued sort of um, sporadic closings of schools and daycares. And so I think this is definitely uh, an issue that we'll be sitting with for a little while. Um, and that especially, you know, people that work from home or work partially from home will be sitting with as they have to navigate um, what their what they can accomplish while their kids are also at home. Right. Um, so I was wondering, you know, since you are um, active in academia, what your experience was with this, um, especially or let's start by talking a little bit about your um experience moving things online. So uh, what I'm interested in there is, was that something that you were already familiar with? Um, a lot of the scholars that I was emailing back and forth with said they'd never taught online before. I know that it was kind of a big part of our grad program to prepare people to teach online. So I was wondering what your experience was with that. And then also, how did you sort of figure out how to do that at home while your kids were also at home? Right. Wow. I feel like this could be like a whole uh, podcast episode in and of itself, right? Because there's so many different things that come up with moving to an online course. So like you said, I think our program really tried to embrace online strategies. And like many um, colleges and universities around the U.S., my college has recently moved to a new LMS system, Canvas. And so we are kind of well poised to put a lot of content up online and being the person I am, I'm always trying to think like three steps ahead because I do work at a smaller career college. And so I am not on a tenure track. My job, you know, I have to always kind of work hard to make sure that I stay employed. And I had been pushing to receive training to teach online. And fortunately, I did receive that training earlier this year because the way we teach our online courses is that they're all very uniform across um, the fields, which makes a lot of sense to me, right? So if a student teaches, or sorry, if a, if a student takes an online composition course, it still kind of looks like an online math course. They all kind of have the same shape, the same feel. There's a heavy emphasis on engagement. But that being said, um, I love online. I love technology. I, I think it's all wonderful. A lot of my students prefer purposefully sought out face-to-face -face classes because when you teach composition, as you know, not the most beloved subject by all, right? Uh, we've experienced this, that some students really wanted that face-to-face -face experience and they purposefully chose a face-to-face -face class. So I really feel like while I was prepared to shift everything online, it was my students sometimes that were really struggling because a lot of the people that I work with are first-gen college students, right? Not everyone has access to good Wi-Fi. We were just talking about this, right? That, you know, the weather, but sometimes it's a financial situation too. So not everyone has this um, nice setup that I do with a laptop and working Wi-Fi. Not all my students do. And so that was really a challenge. And then um, to a certain extent, I had a note about how 
I think there's a lot of sweeping generalizations that, you know, younger people are awesome at technology. What they're pretty awesome at is social media, but they're not always really well-versed in, you know, PowerPoints, sorry, <laughs> PowerPoints or, you know, finding good research using a database. And I do a lot of that work in class so I can kind of sit next to them and help them. Um, so that was really, I think, a big challenge was for the students. Um, I, I don't know if that's something that you have heard about or read about as well, but I think in some cases it was difficult. Um, and there's a lot of assumptions made, and especially we're in Michigan, and we think about some of the impoverished K through 12 school districts where things were also put remotely. And like not, you know, someone was like, oh, you just have to print this out. And I'm thinking to myself, well, not everyone has a good printer. Not everyone knows how to download a PDF. I mean, I'm, there's just some certain assumptions made about all this that I think were tricky. Does that uh, jibe with anything you've heard in your part of the state? Uh, absolutely. I think that was one of the main concerns that the more rural areas, which is where I am, uh, had about the whole stay-at-home order and closing down schools all across the state. There are vast areas in Michigan that I don't think even have um, good access to internet. Right. And so, um, and then of course it also becomes sort of a socioeconomic um, issue. Exactly. Well. Uh, and I'm sure that you see that at, you know, the college level, depending on what different types of colleges you, um, you teach at and what your demographic is or your student body, how your student body is made up, um, that would have a huge impact on, you know, the ability to meet learning outcomes and things like that. Absolutely. I feel like um, my my colleagues and I, like I said, we are pretty fortunate in that we were able to leverage the learning management system in a way that like made sense. And I was trying to use that quite a bit already, but there is those cha those challenges I think will continue to exist. Um, and so I think we have to be able to offer students what they want. And if what they want is to meet and talk with me face to face, then I have to figure out, okay, how do I do a Google Hangout with them? And again, that's not something that everyone's familiar with. Even um, Zoom, I will tell you what, I was not an expert at Zoom at all. Before all this, now I'm like the Zoom master, right? Putting in all these new backgrounds. And um, I even have some pretty uh, cool ones someone posted on a Facebook. It's like, uh, you can make yourself in Star Wars or Star Trek. But I mean, I didn't have that much working knowledge of Zoom before all this, as probably many um, faculty had the same experience, right? So that was, it's been interesting. Um, you might have to teach me some of that um, yeah. background uh, for my work meetings so that they don't have to look <laughs> the whole time. It was meetings. right. It was necessity more than anything, same kind of thing, because when we come back to this challenge of like working from home, we all get that we're working from home and we're academics and, you know, it was just, it's kind of a, I don't know, the the line between my home and work life, I sometimes like to keep a little more separate. And so when you constantly have, again, my children are a little bit older, but my seven-year-old kind of invading a meeting space. When I put that background up, at least I can't see what's really going on. So that makes a lot of sense. I yeah. was wondering too, another question yeah. for you about the uh, family um, and work sort of arrangement is a very pragmatic question. And that is how many, if all of your four kids are moving online and you're moving online, does everybody have a device at your house or do you uh, have scheduled times or arranged times or is it sort of a fight over who gets to use what when? How does that work? That's a really good uh, logistical question. And first and foremost, again, my children are in a very awesome spot where they are three out of four have their own technology. Okay. And that can be a frustration for me because I'm like, this is an advantage. Um, you know, they take it for granted, I guess, sometimes. And so the only one that does not have her own advice is my seven-year-old. And so I did have to have some balancing times. And I think uh, it was hard because I would have to give her my laptop, which is my baby. It's got all my work on it, you know, and all my files. Right. And that's like right. very... That's a challenge because, as you know, after coming out of a dissertation process, like all your files, that's like our livelihood there. And so I had to let her go online with um, – she had – first grade Zoom meetings once a week to check in. And then she also had specials meetings with the different teachers that teach like math and um, not math, I'm sorry, music, but they could go in for special help if they need that. So uh, it got a little dicey. I think the other thing was, again, we're on sort of the um, 
economic plan, if you will, for Wi-Fi. And so there'd be certain times where we had three or four different Zoom meetings going on in one house, and that seemed to be a little bit of a challenge as well. Um, I also had to, at some point, replace the ink in my computer, which I know doesn't sound like a big deal, but I had to take that trip to Costco uh, to get my ink refilled. And that was just a little, again, when we didn't really know what was happening and how this would kind of uh, play out, the COVID-19 that is in the state, even something as simple as getting my ink refilled was a little bit, um, the, caused a little bit of anxiety for me. So, oh, uh, so I could totally see that. we, uh, we went through a lot of paper this year. We went through a lot of ink and again, I'm fortunate that I can give those things to my kids, but I just kept thinking, well, what would happen if I wasn't able to print all this out for them, you know, or what if right. I didn't, I don't know. So I think it's going to be really tricky moving on for everyone, for educators, for parents. Um, and even for us, you know, I was fortunate that I had a couple of laptops and a printer here, but to move all my work from home, it was a pretty quick, like overnight transfer, right? It really was. I mean, it really, it went from, you know, it, it was to, to the extent even that the, none of the, th the children's things came home, you know, right. the logistical problem that I had was that my son's shoes never made it home. Oh my gosh. Wow. I didn't get them until like a couple of weeks ago. So we were a pair of shoes short and things like that. So um, they, they were pretty good. The school district here was very good about handing out packets and making them available at the elementary school, which is just down the street from us. So we were able to take a family walk and it is very, you know, whatever the opposite of densely populated is here. So we right. make it up there without, you know, running into anybody and things like that. So it's, it wasn't, um, as stressful for us here and it didn't spread as fast. So the anxiety level was definitely probably lower than it would have been for me if I had been anywhere near you. Yeah. The metro area was uh, hit probably the hardest. And right. obviously with so many of my, um, I work with a lot of adult students as well who are kind of returning to college. Uh, and a lot of uh, our programs have to do with the health sciences. So we actually have a fairly large amount of students who work in the healthcare field already. Oh, and so that was a little nerve wracking. And it's just all those things that I hadn't ever really thought about kind of, um, I don't know. Yeah, it I mean, really for a stressful up, time. It really brought up a lot of things that I that we'd taken for granted for me as well. Um, I think one of those things is probably um, the, the, your own space and your own um, privacy that you yes. had gotten used to when you were able to drive to campus and have your own office. And yes. for me, I, you know, I had my workspace at home and that was my space during the time that the older kids were in school. So you know, to come back a little bit to the research that you were talking about earlier, you were always somebody even already in grad school who had, you know, a site project here or there, an article that you were working on or something uh, that you were working to publish. Um, and you were able, you were always able to fit that into everything else that you already had going on, which I feel like, which I always thought was very impressive. And so I'm, I was wondering if you were able to keep that up now or if I would imagine that that's the say, the first thing that sort of lands on the cutting room floor with all of these <laughs> balls that we were juggling. Right. So I was wondering if you were still able to maintain that momentum and keep up projects on the side or if you had to postpone some of that as well. Um, that's a really, again, that's a really, I'm sure this is like a common experience for many people, but um, so I did actually have something and part of this goes back to what we're talking about um, and even the reasons behind this podcast, I did, in fact, always try to have a side project going on in grad school because I felt a certain pressure not to be known just by the fact that I was a mother and a PhD student, but just that I was a PhD student and I was going to be like a damn good one, you know, and so I always tried to like be the best. I know that sounds really kind of corny in a way. But I wanted to be very productive. And I think I was. Um, and certain times it was easier than others. But wow. So I did. I had a little chapter I was working on. Um, side note, I love popular culture. And I do, in fact, binge watch a lot of programs. And so when I do that, sometimes um, I try to think about, OK, so rather than just feel like I've completely wasted my time and spent like, you know, 
300 hours or whatever it is watching a show, uh, I'll write something about it. And so this was a case for a project I was working on in a popular science fiction program. And I was really excited about writing it. I'm like, oh, this is great. This is going to be awesome. And it was going okay. You know, um, again, like you said, I had a quiet space in my office at work, right? I could kind of go and hide out there. And when I wasn't grading or prepping, you know, I'm working on my, my paper and my chapter. But when this all happened, um, I looked at the deadline and I thought, okay, I have a little bit of time, but this was the hardest thing I've ever had to write. I mean, I don't know how I got, I finally got up to the required amount of words. It was like a page a day, a paragraph a day. It was like every sentence was a trial and tribulation. And, um, I, I think it was because of this. I think uh, I talked to other people and I'm like, are you writing anything? And they're like, no, are you crazy? Why would you be trying to write something right now? And I said, well, you know, maybe it's a good time because, um, and this might be something to talk about in a future podcast, but you talked about that. What, what was the term you used? Like toxic productivity. Was that you that and I that were talking about that? But this idea of like, yeah, this, this is going to be a really great time to get things done. And I mean, yeah. so. Learn a new language, like learn how to bake. <laughs> Get a bunch of writing done. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I don't, I, I would be curious to hear what other academics experiences were with this. I mean, I think it's great if, if one can channel their energy into that sort of productive work, that's awesome. But to me, there was just so much on my mind. And again, I will put it out there. I get very, very nervous about these types of things. Um, I didn't always I wasn't always like this, but I lost a parent to cancer. And I think once you go through that, I'm a little bit, I don't want to call myself a hypochondriac, but I, I kind of am. I have those tendencies. <laughs> and so once, you know, when this happened, I, all I could think about was like, I mean, I had thermometers out every day for a while and, you know, it's calmed down a bit, but it was hard to just focus in on the work. And um, even with my classes that I moved online, I will be honest, it was hard to always find the headspace to like really think clearly about academic work when I was just really concerned about my family. Right. Right. I think that's probably what, you know, what we're seeing here, um, what the article was talking about and what we will continue to see for right. a few months, at least while this is still going on and while this is still going to come, come back periodically, I think. Um, so what in the, all of this time, it sounds like you were able to work on that a little bit though. How did you did you just have short pockets of time where you were working on it? Did you do it after your kids went to bed? You know, what, how did you, how were you, was it just the pressure of the deadline? How were you able to put it in? <laughs> Uh, this actually I, I picked up from you or I saw you probably posting about um, elsewhere, uh, but just kind of having that early morning time. Um, I used to really be a night owl, uh, not so much in grad school because like at that time I still had three small kids. But when I was an undergrad, night owl all the way. I remember you probably can speak to this too, like reading books until three or four in the morning, watching old movies. Uh, but I found that I'm really much more productive now in the morning. Um, and we talked about this, just having that early morning cup of coffee. No one's awake yet. That was one benefit. I didn't have to get my children up for school every day. And I kind of just went with it. I let them sleep in and I'd have a couple of hours, um, maybe from seven to nine. And so that's really how that ended up getting done. My, he my head's always really clear in the morning and I feel like I get my best ideas. Then by the end of the day, especially in this stay at home uh, situation, I was just, all I could do was like maybe watch a Netflix show and hang out and <laughs> that was about it. Right. right. Uh, so I, I got that from you for sure. Well, that's wonderful. And I think <laughs> it always works for me to get something done in the morning because it makes me feel better. It sets a positive tone for the day. Right. So you, you know, you sat down in the morning, you know, I wrote like my 200 words or whatever, 500 words, whatever your goal is, um, uh, for that day. Um, I don't know that you, I don't know if you, um, have work goals or, but you know, you spend some time with it. You spend some time thinking about it. Uh, you've got something on paper and now you can roll with the day. You know, you've already accomplished that. And then that just gives you a much more positive um, attitude for the rest of the day. That's definitely something that's really important to me. And I can tell a huge difference in my mood at the end of the day, depending on how much I can accomplish by 9 a.m. So... That's a really good point. And for any of our listeners out there that are still in that dissertation mode, I think that's a really key part of it as well as setting the tone. Uh, it's like anything else. I mean, I don't want to liken it to working out or practicing yoga or eating right. But I think the more days in a row that you get that you feel good about it, the better it goes, right? That you're just like, okay, I've set this pattern. 
I did. I got a page done a day. And um, I actually really like what I ended up writing. And it was kind of funny. I've shared this with you as well. I had my 16-year-old son and my husband, who is not an academic, both proofread it for me. Uh, I always like to get that second and third pair of eyes. Uh, They don't always get the uh, content. I remember one time my husband reading the term, I think it was like lumpen proletariat, which was probably back in one of our first grad school classes. And he just wrote, I don't know if I can say this, but like WTF over it, uh, which was <laughs> a really good response because that is a, that's a good response to that term. But um, so I was able to even enlist the family. And I think one thing that is important too, is I've always felt pretty passionately about like my children seeing me do this work and seeing that it's difficult and seeing the number of drafts because I think with my kids anyway, and this this is something we can talk about in future episodes too, um, my kids don't always want to put forth a lot of effort into things. If it doesn't come easy, they want to just give up. And so I, I not only, I've taken in my drafts to my classes, my comp one and two classes to show them all the notes um, from our advisor and kind of the big X's across my paragraphs and even some comments, you know, so to be really transparent with my students, but also my kids, like this is a process and I will get it back. Um, The irony with this one is that I actually had it in a day early. I was like, yes, it was supposed to be in on June 1st and I sent it in on May 31st. And normally, you know, um, as you know, someone will send a little note of receipt, right? Like, okay, great. Got it. I didn't hear anything for a week and uh, I didn't want to seem too eager or weird, but then I finally wrote back the editor and she said, oh, well, I didn't get it at all. And I was so aggravated because I had it done on time. It was even a day early, right? I was like, oh my gosh, uh, not, and I, I don't know. Sometimes I think um, with the different emails, they stack or tile the messages, but I look back, right. I totally sent yeah. it. I don't know what happened there. So that was That's kind of frustrating, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. That makes sense. So, I think one kind of cool thing too, if you want to sort of transition, we wanted to talk about hacks and we wanted to talk about kind of like also positives of this. So what did you want to talk about next? Um, Yeah. So I think it's important that we talk about all of the different things that you've accomplished, but um, we also talked a little bit about all of that anxiety and things like that. (laughs) And so I'm just wondering, um, or I wanted to talk a little bit more about what you've been able to do for yourselves since we're both readers. Um, have you been able to make time for reading at all? And if so, what have you been reading? So that's awesome. And I can't wait. To, I can't wait to hear what you've been reading. Um, I was actually, and I think that is, if anything, that was a, a productive um, sort of avenue for me during this whole time was that I can fall easily into the trap of watching a lot of junk. I love, I love TV. I always have. And maybe that's a very like sort of like 1980s American kid kind of thing. Like that's just like how I grew up. Um, And it's funny because my mom will say, well, you, you didn't watch TV. And I'm like, yes, I did. Like I watch TV all the time. And so I didn't want to like feel that that was all I was doing in my spare time. So I actually have been reading quite a bit. And I had two projects in mind. Um, The first was kind of, this is a funny one, uh, going through my bookcase and just pulling out things that I have meant to read, but I have not yet had the time for. And so um, because I'm a little bit of a book hoarder, I will not deny that. And so pre-pandemic conditions, you know, they have those little free libraries. Whenever I see something like, oh, I want to read that, or that's an author I know, or an author I should learn more about, um, I would take those books. And so I have a lot of books that I haven't gotten around to. Anyway, long story short, um, I had a couple that I was reading. Uh, The first was uh, Chinaman by Maxine Hong Kingston. And this was something a lot of people are familiar with, uh, The Woman Warrior. Um, That's, uh, it's on a lot of QE lists and a lot of um, feminist reading list. And a lot of people have read that, but this was one of those books I might've found, um, outside our department, you know, they always had those shelves of like free books. And I was like, oh, free books. And so to me, I've been thinking a little bit more about how I can start to read beyond just, um, white women, right. If that makes sense. I do tend to read a lot of female authors. Um, some are heterosexual, some are lesbians, but it it seems like a lot of them are white women at any rate. And so I saw that and I thought this is really interesting. Um, and it's written again, kind of thinking about what's happening in the sixties and seventies and things like that. But it was a really interesting book about all the different narratives of Chinese American men. And I really like her style because it speaks to me. It's a lot of 
episodes and fragments. And within the book itself, there's probably numerous accounts of different stories of a grandfather that worked on the rail, the railroad, you know, and building that railroad and how torturous that was and how, um, what kind of, uh, abuses he had to endure. And then there was another grandfather that started a laundry. And so I found it really fascinating. And, you know, um, she talks a, a lot about, uh, some of the racial, uh, ethnic prejudices happening in the world at that time. But, you know, sadly it's like 40 years later and, um, post Wuhan, I think we saw some of the same things still resonating here in the United States. So, um, I found it, it was, it's a bit of a difficult read because of the fragmented episodic sort of nature of it. Um, but I thought that was important. I like difficult reads sometimes. So I was looking at that one. I think you're much more focused in on, um, parenting and feminism. So what have you been reading? Oh, yes. Um, well, um, I've, I've read, um, a couple different things, um, over the last, um, over the last few months, I've actually been able to read a lot more too. I don't know if you're on Goodreads. Um, I gave myself a Goodreads challenge of 12 books for the year. I thought that would be a reasonable goal. I had six books in 2019 and three of those were audiobooks. So I was very unhappy. Um, and I was actually able to, you know, get to those 12 books by the end of, I, I think sometimes in April, sometime in April. So I felt uh, encouraged to double that number. Um, I've been able to read a lot, which which has been fun and entertaining. And I've currently have been doing a fiction book and a nonfiction book at the same time. Oh, that's smart. That's good. I try to always have um, one of those. But my reading highlight for the for the pandemic, and I think what I'll always remember about the quarantine is that my daughter and I have finally gotten into real substantial read alouds. We awesome. Read, we read The Secret Garden earlier in the year, and um, we're currently working our way through Harry Potter, and that's been just um, that's just been really great for me to be able to share that experience with her. I have very fond memories of reading with my mom when I was kid when I was a kid, or having her read to me, and so it's been very exciting for me to be able to share those with her. I read, I think, the first four Harry Potter books like in the early two thousands, and then I kind of fell off a bandwagon, so I don't remember much of it. So it's kind of for me like reading them for the first time as well, and we're going through it together, and it's been just a great experience to do that together. So I'll talk about some of those other books that I'm reading for myself. Yeah, that yeah. sounds awesome, though. I have the same, and I mean, it makes sense. I always uh, share this. Like I've loved reading; those are some of my happiest childhood memories. Is uh, are of like my father reading to me, my mother reading to me, my grandfather, and I was always in a home with books. And my father could be kind of parsimonious or what have you, but um, he always splurged for books. If I wanted a set, whether it was something really silly like the Babysitter's Club, uh, that was a fan favorite, or it was a Little House in the Prairie, I'd always get the full, you know, 10 book set or nine book set. And he always let us um, buy books. And so it's a little disappointing to me uh, because my older children are not the voracious readers that I would hope. But it's interesting that you bring up, you know, kind of sharing a series with your daughter because we have just been looking at the um, Anne of Green Gables series. And I really like those. Yeah. Um, I read all of them. And it's interesting to me because what got us sort of back into it is there is a Netflix show. It's called Anne with an E. And it's another, I think this is probably the third or fourth recreation of the Anne of Green Gables series. Uh, but this one is a little darker. And I, so it really made me curious, like you said, to go back and revisit the book because I'm like, did I just not pick up on this when I was reading it as a 10 year old? Or is this just kind of how they've opted to sort of like interpret and understand the text. So I think it's great. Um, it's so fun to watch your child sort of come alive with reading and when, when they get it and they love it, it's like, it's the best, right? I mean, and just to have her come to me and say, mom, can we read some more has just been really, um, heartwarming. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and that's how you get kids excited about literature, right? You start with what they like. Um, exactly. I think that's really important. Absolutely. I agree. I agree. So were you reading Harry Potter when you were in college or was that a little bit, were you like in high school? Um, it was in high school. I think I read the first, like I said, I read the first four, um, maybe like after, right after the fourth came out and okay. then I just, by the time the fifth came out, I had lost interest a little bit. 
and was reading other things and doing other things. Um, and yeah, I kind of missed that um, trend because I'm, I'm older than you, obviously. Right. And so I remember it was kind of like I was waitressing. I want to say I was in my 20s and I actually had some older like adults, like, you know, mid middle age. I remember it was a middle aged man and he was reading Harry Potter and I was kind of like shocked. He was, you know, he came in for lunch by himself and he's like, no, I just can't put it down. And I people are always like, oh, don't you love that series? And I'm like, honestly, it kind of hit when I was just not in the time to be reading sort of like a magical you know, series, it just didn't kind of like resonate with me at the time. Cause I, I was a 20 year old, you know, like going to bars or whatever. So well, right. it didn't and mesh that, with me at the time. And I think that's why I never, uh, that's why I didn't pick up those last right. three, um, just because I was not interested in it at the time. But if you think about, it, I believe that Harry Potter was the series that really started that sort of young adult lit craze for, yeah. for all ages. And so um, I think some people call it all age literature too. Um, so hmm. I, th and I think that was, if I'm not mistaken, I think that was started by Harry Potter really, or that really kicked it off. So it's kind of interesting to go back to that and see why and how it's possible that a book can be so compelling for both me and my daughter at the same time. It's right. And like spanning generations and people still love it. So I think that's really awesome. And again, as an educator and someone who wants to share literature, I'm like, if you like it, go for it. You know, exactly. um, I'm excited. If you're excited about reading it, I'm excited um, exactly. because that doesn't always happen. I've tried everything with my kids. They didn't go for the um, Little House on the Prairie series. That was a very popular one when I was growing I up. And I, I like those. With my daughter because she's interested in history, but then now she's reading Harry Potter. And yeah. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and that's another thing, actually. I've asked all kinds of people that I know, all other like mom friends that I have that have read the series with them with their kids is the question of how far do you let the kids go? Because the Harry Potter books get more and more dark and violent uh, right. the further you move along. And my daughter is, um, you know, very, she wants to read, she wants to read, she wants to read. And I don't know if I'm still deciding we're on the third volume right now. I'm still deciding on whether or not I'm going to just say, we're going to wait a year with the next one. Right. Or right. if it's a matter of, well, if you're excited about reading, I'm not going to tell you no on that one. So um, I'd right. love to hear people's opinions on that. So if anybody yeah. listening has an opinion on that, please share. Yeah, there's probably some well-read Harry Potter scholars. There's always a Harry Potter um conference panel whatever conference I end up uh, I did a lot of the popular culture um, yes. conferences and so it's still th those are always fun the southwest PCA actually has a um, Harry Potter I think they have a Harry Potter um, area of interest so they have like 10 or 12 panels just on Harry Potter that's awesome yeah well, so to kind of finish up our episode today how do you think we're doing on time uh, I have no idea. <laughs> See, it's fun. Um, and we can always edit out anything that's, you know, should we end up with some hacks or what do you think? Yes. Uh, do you have anything or do you want me to go first? No, I am hackless. So this is one. Hackless. An, I'm hackless. No, this is one of the reasons I love being friends with you because we are so, so similar in many ways and sort of our probably ideologies and thinking about feminism and working and maternity and all that great stuff. But I think we have really different personalities and you excel in organization and planning. I am like the absolute worst. Um, so you said something about stocks and this is just, I don't know. I don't know how much I want to share about it. At some point, maybe I can post the picture of our socks, but it's like out of hand. Um, I am oh not, <laughs> I am not a person that has a lot of hacks. Oh, I have one that can tell you, I have one that's worked out for me, but let's hear your hacks. So you've been, again, so you have been a little pr productive thinking about new and interesting ways to like have the kids pitch in or what was the hack? Yes. So speaking of socks, um, <laughs> I was really excited this week. Um, my son, my three-year-old um, was really, he saw me folding the laundry and I always see, leave the socks for last. And he got really excited and wanted to help me. And so we figured out, this is kind of silly, but, um, and it's sometimes, you know, when you start off, it's less the help than further down the road, but um, he figured out how to, you know, put the two, how to match socks and then how to roll them together into what he called a caterpillar. 
uh, which was adorable. And so um, his little hands trying to get, you know, the sock stuff together was uh, amazing and entertained me while I folded the rest of the laundry. And lo and behold, the next time I was folding laundry, he came in and said, can I do the socks? So that's my hack. That's awesome. And I mean, if you want to get really um, maybe more educational with it, you know, you could say you're working on some uh, fine motor skills there. You're working on matching. So it's not only a win for the parent uh, who's ever folding the laundry, because I too wait and wait to do the socks. And that's probably why it's the bane of my existence, because we have a lot of white socks that uh, just oh. don't match up. But you could talk about, you know, this is also helping him develop some other skills. So I love it, uh, making it yeah. fun. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of helpful sons, before we uh, log off and say goodbye um, until next time, I want to give a shout out to your son uh, for helping us figure some of these things out, for helping with the logo and helping with the technology and whatnot. Um, I, I'm really excited that he was on board and he was able to help us out a little bit. Um, yeah, that's great. I think, again, what we do is so important to like set this good example, whether it is about education. Um, I try to get my kids involved as much as possible. So I think we're both doing really well with that. Um, yeah. Thanks to my son. He knows more about some of these <laughs> technological programs than probably uh, people who are 30 years old. So he's always a good help. That's awesome. Yeah. So should we share a little bit about how people can get in touch with us if they want to? Absolutely. So I think um, there's going to be um, a an Instagram account that we're going to use. Um, so you can find us at PhD in parenting on Instagram Awesome, um, and you can follow us there. So you'll get updates when there's new episodes and whatnot. And of course, if you've made it this far in the episode and you want to give us some feedback or let us know what you think, you can send us an email at um, PhD in parenting podcast at gmail.com. That's awesome. And I love it if anyone wants to share any feedback, but also if you have ideas for future episodes, what has, troubled you, excited you um, about being a parent in the academy. So you could please feel free to email us any ideas or anything else. And we'd love to be in touch. 